This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Reuse our future. And join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Stephanie Phillips, a recipient of the 2021 Goodall Fellowship. Stephanie will be sharing about her Circular Heritage Project, which the fellowship supported the launch of. The Circular Heritage Project, which seeks to strengthen the alignment between the heritage conservation field and the growing circular economy movement in North America. All on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are excited to be talking with Stephanie Phillips, who is a recipient of a Harrison Goodall Fellowship. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, and she is going to be talking about her circular heritage project, which the fellowship supported the launch of. So, But before we get there, we like to get to know people, particularly people working on a fellowship project. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where do you come from? Uh, and uh, what's your uh, what was your path to work in this field? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Excited to be here. Um, so I was very fortunate to grow up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I love Milwaukee, highly underrated city. And you may hear some vestiges of my Midwest accent, specifically with a long A. So I apologize in advance if that happens. But um, I was very fortunate to grow up going to a lot of like incredible museums and cultural institutions in the city for field trips that were in older buildings ranging from the 19th century to mid-century buildings, including the phenomenal Milwaukee Domes, which is a horticultural conservancy held within three geodesic domes from the 1960s that are currently threatened, so save Milwaukee domes. But as part of that, I also grew up often going to Chicago, which is personally my favorite U.S. city. So being uh, able to grow up between those two Midwestern cities was phenomenal. But I really started thinking about preservation as a career path in college. Um, I attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which also has such a wonderful collection of historic buildings, especially State Street, which is a fully pedestrian boulevard that connects the college campus to the state capitol. So, of course, looking back, I probably absorbed a level of interest and appreciation in the historic pattern of the city and the campus when I, when I was there. But what really turned me to preservation specifically was my major, which was interior design. And I loved my program. It was a great foundation for a career in preservation. But most of the studios were very much like, here is this project in Anywhere USA in this little box, design within it. And I was really kind of curious about working in design spaces where there was a specific place, um, which typically mean, means designing within an existing building. So I looked at preservation master's degrees that were embedded within architecture schools and ended up landing at the University of Texas at Austin, which was a perfect fit and is the key reason why I'm so rooted in the field today. So, And so what do you do in the field today? Yes. So I am, I have a unique title in preservation, but hopefully more people uh, will have a title like me in the future. I work for the city of San Antonio's Office of Historic Preservation, and I am the Deconstruction and Circular Economy Program Manager. Um, I didn't start with that job. I actually uh, was a senior historic preservation specialist when I started, which largely supported our version of a landmarks commission. So 
case management for our Landmarks Commission and working with property owners to and property stewards to make changes to their exterior buildings. But now I focus on administering our deconstruction and circular economy program, which is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> It is the coolest thing ever, and and more people need to know about it, which is one of the exciting reasons that you were selected. And um, so let's talk about the Goodall Fellowship, and then we'll get into your project. So the Goodall Fellowship, I guess for people who are listening, um, uh, and you know, I could describe it, but I, I'll, I'll let you do it. What is it, and how did you hear about it? Yes. So the Goodall Fellowship is an opportunity to undertake a Know, focused project that makes a meaningful contribution to the field of historic preservation and specifically is geared towards projects that kind of drive the field forward through like an innovative approach. And I was really drawn to the program. Um, and I heard about it on LinkedIn because I love LinkedIn. I'm on it all the time. <laughs> so one of my uh, uh, connections shared it. And it, it was something that I jumped at the opportunity to apply to because it's such a unique fellowship and that it's structured to cater to either existing graduate students or people like me that are working professionally in the field full time. And that can make it really difficult to, you know, pursue projects uh, meaningfully that within the boundaries of a job, right? We all are, you know, working, we have so much time, only so much time. So the structure of the fellowship, which is a year long and affords, um, you know, the guidance of a mentor, if we so choose, along with the fellowship committee with quarterly check-ins is really something for a deadline driven person like me that actually allowed me to dive into something that I've wanted to create for several years now. So it's really, really unique, not only in that it supports innovation, but also is geared towards working professionals. Well, I, I might be a little bit um, biased in, in how much I like it because we worked with Harrison um, who is a, a wonderful human being and a great preservationist um, to fund this. And um, we support it, uh, you know, nationally through Preservation Maryland's efforts. Um, but, you know, we, and, and Harrison, to his credit, is the one who saw that there was sort of a gap. Like there's really, this doesn't really exist. I mean, there's funding for, say, an organization who wants to do something like this. But for an individual to undertake it, um, yeah, there's really nothing like it out there, which is pretty cool. And it's cool because it's supporting things um, like uh, the work that you're doing. So let's talk about your project. So and maybe defining it, too. So what did you apply in for? And then we'll talk about what this what the circular economy means and, and what what your effort has been and, and where this is headed. But what was the uh, what was your application? And then we'll talk about defining the circular economy. Sure. So my project that I applied with was the creation of a circular heritage toolkit. And it has been a goal of mine to create essentially a resource that I wish I had over four years ago, when our office, the city of San Antonio Office of Historic Preservation, undertook a deconstruction and salvage policy led by a preservation office, which is still incredibly rare and unique for um uh, an office charged with preserving buildings in place to talk about how we take them down. Um, those discussions are usually in uh, sustainability offices or development services offices. So for us to be, you know, pursuing that at the local level from preservation was very unique, which resulted in us needing to kind of innovate <laughs> in real time. 
Um, and I was really interested in creating a toolkit or a resource that condensed examples of circular economy reuse and research policies, programs, and partnerships in one place that was most importantly specifically written for the heritage conservation or historic preservation field, because that resource also doesn't didn't exist yet. So that was the goal that I was seeking to achieve with my project. And how many do we have a sense for how many of these programs exist nationally? I mean, I know that there's one in Pittsburgh. There's yours. Are there others that we should be aware of? Yes, definitely. So um, kind of the the North Star for local policy programs is Portland, Oregon. Uh, They were the first city in North America to adopt a deconstruction ordinance back in 2016, which they expanded in 2019. And that was the first one that legally mandated that if a uh, older house or duplex built before a certain age was approved for removal, it had to be deconstructed by hand instead of mechanically demolished and landfilled. So that that program has been in existence for over six years now. And, and part of the toolkit and part of my work has been engaging with these other city um, leaders and, and discussing with them how to potentially scale that and implement that in our own um, city. So part of what I sought to package and offer to preservationists is how to approach you know, sustainability leaders and solid waste development leaders in developing these kind of policies. So Portland, for sure. Um, Milwaukee also adopted a deconstruction ordinance. Um, And then there's a bunch of different cities across the country that may not have something just like an ordinance, but something similar like a construction and demolition waste diversion ordinance, or something similar like in Boulder, Colorado, San Francisco, um, Atlanta, what have you. So more and more, we're seeing this kind of uh, discussion pop up, which is why it's so imperative for preservationists to be at the table, or in my opinion, leading the conversation. So how opposed, I'm, I'm just curious, I mean, I, and I didn't prep you for this question, but how opposed is the development community to these kinds? I mean, is that is that your primary, op, I don't want to say opposition, um, but are those the people who are the, the most opposed to this? Is that basically where you're getting the most pushback? Yeah, well, I'm happy to share that we adopted a deconstruction ordinance in September. So we we got through <laughs> um, and we have an ordinance that is currently in effect and is um, going into effect for private properties in January of next year. So we we spent four and a half years working with the San Antonio community to, to get that through. Um, but Yes, absolutely. To answer your question, um, the development community was the one that we worked with the most intently on figuring out how to get something that they would support, which we actually did, um, which is covered in the toolkit as well as kind of how to build that political willpower and have those conversations that may be difficult to have. Maybe talk to us about that, like what aspect of the toolkit. And obviously the toolkit is going to be available. We'll we'll you know, I, there are people here in Maryland who are excited for it. I've been talking about it. So we, we got to get our hands on this thing. But and everybody listening is going to want a copy of it. Um, and we'll talk about when that'll be available and everything. But um, talk to us about that piece. How do you because I think that that's where a lot where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people. Like 
you know, from a sustainability perspective, yeah, it's great. From a, you know, environmental perspective, yeah, it's great. Everybody kind of loves the idea of it. And then it's like the developers who are like, uh, yeah, no, um, because this is going to cost us a crazy amount of money. And um, we'd rather just push things over and throw them in a landfill. How do you make that argument? Did you get developers who were supportive of it? Were some just never going to be supportive of it? Where does it, how does that work? Yes, that is such a good question. And honestly, one of, this is my favorite topic is building kind of this coalition of, of people that will support uh, progressive environmental and preservation policy. But I mean, something that you just mentioned that I want to highlight is I think there's sometimes a perception that can hinder people that are working on these progressive policies that where they're like, we need to get everyone on board. <laughs> and that's just not a reality. <laughs> you know, not everyone is going to support um, a policy like this in our community. And and it's true, we still have some adversaries that that are not happy about it, that are going to have to make the adjustment, right? Um, but it's really, for us, we focused on education, on data collection, and, you know, really communicating the scale of demolition, and what that means to our community. So, we came at it. I often said that we're kind of like millions. We have to figure out how to say the same thing in different ways to different groups of people. Um, and that's what we did with our development community. So we were able to uh, communicate how demolition is not just a landfill issue. It's also a public health issue, demolition, air pollution, right? And through tracking demolition data in San Antonio, which made may be different in other communities, but for us, we were able to clearly communicate to our decision makers and development de developers that demolitions most frequently happen to small-scale affordable housing units, naturally occurring, occurring affordable housing, and also affect our um, districts that are were formerly redlined and are, are disproportionately affected by the public health aspects of demolition. And what are they replaced by? Do we know that they're replaced by unaffordable, non-affordable. I'm not sure what the right, the correct grammatical term is there, but things that we can't afford. Yes. Yes. Um, we undertook that very study, right? Like we, we, something that really was a priority for us was using data to communicate a story and to tell a really big story about what demolition meant. And for us, the, um, in San Antonio, at least the small scale housing units that are currently affordable, that are being demolished, are being are most often being replaced by um, new housing that is of a higher intensity. So a single family unit turning into two, four, six, eight <laughs> housing units, and then those that are um, less affordable. So they get into a different AMI. And so we have that data, right? It's out there, it's available. And for us, we just needed to be able to put that on paper, create graphs, create talking points, communicate that as part of our reason for why deconstruction is important because often the argument we hear is deconstruction negatively impacts housing affordability. So being able to say, yes, you may be paying more upfront to deconstruct the building, but that's actually like 0.01% of your overall budget of how, what you're putting back on the site. And that's not always, but it's important to communicate that. And in the end, does it so one of the conversations that a lot of preservationists have is that, well, this will be a disincentive against demolition that people will rehab rather just because it changes the the economics of that. Is that true? Uh, so the data on that is sparse, of course, because 
adoption is is still relatively new, quote unquote, new <laughs> policy wise in the United States. Even though we also always like to say that before the advent of heavy machinery <laughs> in World War II, deconstruction was how we took down buildings, right? Right. Um, so it's not new. It's actually a historic building trade. Um, but in terms of tracking that data, that's another great reason to look at what's been happen- happening in Portland. And at, after the adoption of their ordinance, they actually saw less requests, like consistently year after year, to demolish at all, right? Um, and that's not just due to the ordinance, right? Like we're talking about a lot of complex economic and development factors that are going to be unique in every city, but it really does change the conversation, right? Because you're not hitting against rehab, which could sometimes be very more um, economically intensive with a cheap and fast way to remove a building. So I think it's absolutely an important conversation um, in a preservationist toolkit about how we talk about how we treat our buildings, um, either the ones that we keep or the ones at the end of their life cycle. So why don't we take a quick break, come back and then talk about this toolkit where people can get their hands on it, because I'm sure every preservationist listening is like, OK, this is a great conversation. I need to read this damn thing and uh, and deploy it in my community. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're having a great conversation with Stephanie Phillips. We're talking all about how um, she's done this research and the impact um, that deconstruction could have not only on sustainability, but on the economy of local communities. Um, And in her own community, they're deploying it. And she's been talking about where it's happened elsewhere. And the focus of all of this is a Harrison Goodall Fellowship that supported this research, that's supporting a toolkit that not only um, allowed Stephanie to kind of think through how it's working and playing out in her community, but will be uh, a hands-on toolkit for people all across the country, maybe across the world, um, to use this. So where what's the status of it? Where can people get their hands on it? How can we get this out and get uh, people using it? Yes. So I'm currently putting on the final touches um, because we just adopted an ordinance recently and making sure that that information is updated. Um, Because when the fellowship was being finalized, we still hadn't had the ordinance adopted, right? right? So the language about how a preservation office can get a deconstruction policy passed and adopted was still up in the air. Uh, so it's going to, my plan is to officially have it released um, in January, which is when our ordinance goes into effect for private properties with a wealth of that information. Um, but I'm delivering a current copy to uh, Preservation Maryland next Monday to upload on the website. So y'all might be able to get a, a, 
on the early edition of it, but just know that this is something that I have anticipated from the start to be something that is updated as new information is available. Is there a, and I'm curious, like for, you know, there's the revolving fund work group um, where people who work on revolving funds get together there. We are, you know, at Preservation Maryland, we have our campaign for historic trades, which one of them is going to be deconstruction, as you said, because that is a, um, a historic trade. And we're actually developing a registered apprenticeship with the U.S. Department of Labor for deconstruction. Um, so, you know, but, but there's a consortium, what I'm getting at, of people who care about trades. Is there a group of people who are now getting together to talk about the circular economy, to talk about deconstruction? Do the, you know, and I say this with all due respect, do the deconstruction nerds get together and and talk about that together? Is there, and if people who are interested in doing that, can they join you somewhere? Yes. So what I highly recommend is engaging with a national nonprofit called Build Reuse. Um, I'm on their board. Uh, snuck my way on their board uh, a few years ago, just for my own interest, right? Diving headfirst into this field um, from a preservation perspective. And I say this to everyone, like one of my personal goals is to be like the only preservationist in the room. <laughs> like that's where you can connect with people on these critical topics that are often siloed. So that was my experience with this organization but they have my favorite conference of the year, which is a deconstruction and reuse conference, where they talk about like boots on the ground, how to pass deconstruction policy, how to support a deconstruction workforce, how to support um, reuse retail. And I'm very happy to share that in February of 2024, the conference will be in person again in Savannah, which is going to be Amazing. So I, I heard about this actually because I was with the uh, deconstruction folks in Savannah a couple weeks ago. Um, because the head of our historic trades program actually lives in Savannah and has workshop space down there. And they were very excited about that it's coming to Savannah because I know Savannah is sort of toying with the idea of this as well. Absolutely. And we were just with them as well. Something that we're currently um, working on in scaling up to our ordinance kind of, you know, affecting a lot of properties in 2023 is hosting deconstruction contractor training. Um, so that was one of our big priorities in the past four and a half years is training a workforce that can offer this service to our community, um, which is also covered in the toolkit, right? There's a whole chapter on um, a reuse workforce and how important it is to do what the Campaign for Historic Trades is doing nationally, but locally is really building up that workforce that can you know, provide this to the community um, in competition to demolition. So we had May and Katie from Repurpose Savannah down in Savannah in San Antonio for almost three weeks, training nearly 40 contractors on how to deconstruct a building the right way. And they're the best people to do it because they have such a unique perspective on deconstruction um, as a tool for preservation. So we love them here in San Antonio too. <laughs> well, this is exciting. So people should check out Build Reuse. Um, we will put a link in the show notes to the the draft copy of um, the, the, this handbook to the circular economy. Um, before we go, we always ask people, we kind of put them on the hot seat and make them uncomfortable. What's, uh, what's your favorite historic place or site? Oh, I love that. Um, mine's kind of a cop out. Um, I'm going to share my favorite, like historic building type, <laughs> which okay. is cottage courts. I love them. I'm obsessed with them. Um, and some of my favorites, 
that I can reference um, are in Austin and San Antonio, basically clusters of four to six houses that were built in like the early 20th century. Um, and that development pattern is kind of gaining more traction uh, nowadays to kind of potentially revive as a way to build, you know, you know, close communities uh, that are self-sustaining. So sort of the original uh, missing middle, right? Yes, exactly. And I always point out when I'm at these affordable housing conversations about, you know, we need to figure out how to do missing middle. I'm like, just go to a historic community, look at it and do that again. Exactly. I feel like that's just so many development challenges is just, just look at what we used to do. (laughs) So yeah. And the ones that I adore in San Antonio and Austin um, very much look like kind of fairy cottages. They have like Tudor roof swoops. They have really high pitched roofs, roofs. So they kind of look like little gnome homes and I adore them. So <laughs> well, <laughs> gnome homes, that. gnome homes is a great place to end this conversation. Hashtag gnome homes. Um, and uh so excited to be able to take a look at this, to share this with everyone. Um, not only, obviously, is this fellowship helping you kind of grow, but it's I, it's going to help this circular economy grow throughout the country. And I, I know people here in Maryland who are looking forward to taking a look at it, and I'm sure people all across the country are. So thanks so much for joining us and for your good work on this, and uh, look forward to catch up with you again in the future. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.